it's fantastic being in a room with people that are all smarter than you. You can do that. You know, if you sell an idea, you get people excited, you can get people on board and you can have really, really smart people working with you and, you know, you can reach for the moon then, you know. That's Ben Cronin, co-founder and CEO of two technology companies, GBR Direct, now Kicker, and UBO Service. Founded in 2007, Kicker was simultaneously sold and listed on the Sydney Stock Exchange with a current market cap of $43 million in 2016. And in 2020, Ben left Kicker to build an anti-money laundering product more suitable for the smaller to medium-sized entities. This venture is called UBO Services and they'll be launching the newest version of their product in October 2022. Watch out for AML Pal, one to watch. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. The reason I wanted to invite Ben to the podcast was, I know him for a long time. I think I know him since about 2009, 2010. And it's really been a very interesting journey to watch. His uh, spaces is in the tech sector, predominantly in the fintech sector around anti-money laundering. So it's kind of an interesting space in light of everything that's been happening in the world over the last few years. So uh, welcome, Ben, to the podcast. Thank you, Fanola. Delighted to be here. Um, what I thought might be interesting is I remember, so I was just mentioning to Ben that I was uh, reading his bio that he sent me in advance of uh, our recording. And and I said, just a few lines, just so I can kind of tell people who you are and stuff at the end. And I noted that it was so succinct and it cast me back to the early days because you started the first company, GBR Direct, in 2007. And I met you around 2009, 2010. But I remember those years where there was a lot of trying to figure out of what is the product? What is the right thing that we want to bring to the market? You knew the essence of the product, but so much figuring out, I suppose. I thought it might be interesting to look at that. Yeah, that's true, Fanola. I mean, we we had a product uh, that we developed relatively quickly. The idea I suppose, formed in 2007, um, 2008, when we actually set up a registered company, but we, we didn't have a product per se until about a year, but we, we, we knew, we knew, we knew what we wanted to do at that stage or we felt we, we knew the right answer. And what it was, was, uh, without get, getting into too much detail as the, the product, we connected or using technology, we connected with the CRO or company registration office in, in Ireland and the UK, and we then added uh, other registries around Europe and then ultimately globally. And company houses uh, have data on essentially companies. Uh, every country has filing obligations. And that, that data is very important in the context of anti-money laundering. And so the idea simply at that time was, okay, let's connect to as many registries as possible. 
and see can we mm. sell that service into banks in particular or financial institutions that we knew uh, required that data as part of their anti-money laundering uh, regime, as it were. Was anti-money laundering, that was fairly new at that time, wasn't it? It was. It, w- it was. that the. I mean, anti-money laundering, I, I suppose, re- regulations would have been in situ, particularly the Euro- in a European context from 2000, the early 2000s in particular, uh, Re- regulation started emerging out of the EU Commission, anti-money laundering directives one, two, and three would have been early uh, uh, 2000s. What what actually happened uh, in, in, in terms of the to- our timing was fortunate in one sense because the financial meltdown was just happening or had just yeah. happened. Um, banks were in turmoil. Accounts and business propositions uh, were were problematic, as you can imagine. A lot of people went went into liquidation, and a lot of deals fell through. Um, and because of that, because of that, it kind of highlighted the fact that banks actually, prior to then, hadn't really onboarded customers properly at all. They realised when 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 things go bad, uh, you know, a lot of time it can recourse to legal. And banks found that they had bank accounts with entities that didn't even exist in a real, in a legal sense. So mm-hmm. somebody prior to prior to two thousand seven could probably walk into an account uh, into a bank and say, "My my company name is Ben Cronin Limited." Um, uh, the bank at that stage would never have checked with the CRO uh, in Dublin. Well, did Ben Cronin Limited actually exist? Um, mm-hmm. So. They would have taken me at face value, and I, I would have said my company name is as follows. In a legal sense, if if uh, if that bank are chasing a legal entity called Bank Ben Cronin Limited that doesn't exist, then the bank are really compromised there, as you can imagine. So mm. the the financial meltdown, in one kind of way, uh, highlighted the fact that you needed to be more careful while you when you onboarded customers from in a general business sense as well as in an anti-money laundering sense. I mean, there was two strands to it. There's no point in suing an entity that is not a legal entity. Um, so that... that Does that mean because you have no recourse? Yeah, well, who, well, who, who, who goes to court? There's, there's, you know, yeah. a director of a company that doesn't exist. No, doesn't. So, um, so, so that, that was highlighted because of the financial meltdown. And, consecu- uh, you know, that coincided with more regs coming out of the EU. The problem of money laundering is enormous. It is staggering the numbers. You know, you're talking about trillions of dollars every year are washed through various systems, in an, which is illegal and uh, laundered money. Uh, and the, the estimate is that, that the authorities pick up or capture about 5% of what actually happens. That, that's right. Wow. These are stats from, from this year. It is the wow. Sc- the so still, it's not yeah. from. Oh, the scale is just unbelievable. It's it's everywhere, um, and there's a lot of you know, I suppose sectors that are particularly high high risk from it. Um, but I suppose in, in the context of your question, we did have a bit of a tailwind at that time. The financial meltdown, in one sense, meant the banks had less money and less budget, but it had been highlighted to banks how problematic their current their their existing systems were. So we, we we kind of our timing was fortunate in one way and unfortunate in another. Um, can I ask you, when you were coming up with the idea for the business, did you sense that this was an issue that needed to be addressed, and then you were lucky, or did you smell it? Like, how did it come? 
well, I had a connection in the registry space, which was obviously a pivotal part of it. So uh, a, a connection of mine um, who worked in the registry space, he was, he was involved in a tech business that, that actually uh, developed registries and built registries uh, all over the world. Now, these would be registries that would include company registries, but, but also registries that would be, you know, uh, aircraft leasing registries, deaths, births, marriages, registries, registries in a, in a general sense that governments would build. And he, he was in the registry space and he and I had spoken for about a year about this idea of building one portal where you could access multiple registries for, for company information in particular. Um, and then on the on the flips on the on the other side in the re regulation side, you could see if you looked at the regulations, you know, emanating from the EU Commission or from the the SEC in in uh, in America or from the Bank of England, that there was this move. It was quite explicit in a lot of the legislation that you had to identify and verify companies and people that you were doing business with. Now. The thing with regs and the thing I know now with regs is a, a reg a regulation will come out now and uh, it's released essentially to the market and the, and the people that are being regulated kind of are given years to work out whether this is doable is it going to be too expensive are there ways of meeting that regs with that that regulation and regulators generally don't start hammering until after that process has gone through. Because sometimes a regulation can come out and it's just, it's too expensive or it's unwieldy and the market isn't capable of kind of dealing with it. Uh, so regulators are kind of cautious in terms of hammering people if they, if people haven't been given enough time or enough chances to remedy their, the situation. So, so a regulation that comes out today, they, it may not be enforced for a number of years really by the regulator. So we looked at the regs at that time and it was very clear that we were in a good place, but in hindsight, looking back, it was we, we we saw that really the regulators didn't really start fining for a number of years after that. So we kind of were stuck with a product that we knew would get traction at some point, but we weren't sure when it would. And uh, it took years. Um, and when we, so, so th and that that was the problem. Um, and you you in your first question you asked about did we have the right product. That was part of the problem was that we knew we had the right product and we knew we had banks that wanted to consume it as well because we we met with banks that were customers but they weren't consuming it enough um in in enough volumes so we yeah we, to make sense to make for sense you commercially yeah so so we we did have a, a fairly extensive period of years i would say three or four years knowing we were on the, doing the right thing but having to kind of explore whether we needed to tweak the product or do other stuff to keep the doors open um or or change the product slightly and one of the things we did do with the product was we built an api so that it could be consumed in a more efficient way by our customers our data or the data we'd access to that was kind of a pivotal moment we only did that mm. three or four three or four years in Prior to that, in terms of keeping the door open, we had to engage with, uh, we, we, we essentially became, a, uh, we, we contracted out to other companies that we needed, that needed tech capabilities. And we just kind of did outsource work just to keep the team going at times, you know. Um, so it was very- Yeah, but that's what a great, uh, I think people need to hear that, that you, you know, on that entrepreneurial journey, you the ones that are successful, you do what you have to do to kind of make ends meet, to keep the show on the road until you hit gold. 
Yeah, oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, we, Rob, I, I must mention my co-founder, Rob Leslie, who you know as well. Uh, mm. You know, I, w- when, when I started the business, I, I knew I didn't have the tech kind of know-how or capability to kind of do it on my own. So I, I, I met Rob for a coffee. I've, I kind of vaguely knew him at the time. I met him for a cup of coffee and I pitched, uh, I pitched the idea to him. And I knew he had, he, Rob had lived in Tokyo for 20 years and he'd been involved in some tech businesses there and had, had done a couple of exits with tech businesses. So I, uh, he was back in Waterford. Um, so I pitched it to him and he, he, he liked it straight away. So he came on board, um, in order to, to provide that kind of experience in terms of the, the, the tech, the technical side of it. And, you know, at, at times, Rob and I, we weren't, you know, back, you know, it, we're, we're talking about the idea of keeping the doors open and keeping the salaries going. We, 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 we at times didn't pay ourselves for lots of times, you know, and that's a very common yeah. story, I suppose, you hear with entrepreneurs that at times you're, you're, you're that broke, you know, or, or the business mm. is not creating enough, you know. Um, so we would have taken the hit for a lot for 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 many months, you know, um, and that's 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 what you need to do. I also remember though that you very early on um, set up an employee share option scheme, which helped uh, consolidate your team around you. I remember that. Yeah, that's right. So we set up an. E- I'm not sure the the year now. It was around 2011 or 2012. We set up a, a an employee scheme, an ESOP scheme. Yeah, for our I suppose key hires. Uh, you know, the be- the beauty of ESOP schemes is it's designed to to keep keep people longer. And the way it works, I think that was war- ran over five years. So if you stayed for five years, you you every year you you were vested more shares. Uh, on the basis of you staying in the business. So it encouraged people to stay for at least five years. We did have a couple that left after three and four, but they were, we, we just couldn't keep them for a lot of, for, for various other reasons. But, but uh, it's a great idea. But it paid off uh, for your, for you and your, those key team people, team members who stayed because you sold the business then. Oh, ultimately, yeah, yeah. I mean, we sold the business in 2016. We had an event that we we essentially sold the business, yeah, and they all did well out of it, um, which is fantastic. And that's that's why you do it, and that's yeah. why they do it. And uh, the thing with ESAP scheme is you're asking somebody to show commitment, you know, and uh, with at, at times, you know, you you you. you 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 can get people working really hard and really committed to the project because they they believed in us I suppose or believed in the project and uh, I I I think they all did well out of it which is I'm, I'm delighted to say um, mm. uh, a lot of them were were very happy um, with it and some of them are still still working with Kicker which is what, what the business is now called you know so um, ESOP is very interesting I mean it's something that's very common in tech it's not so common in a lot of other businesses but um, I I I I think it can be designed to really work well for both parties, you know. Yeah, you're glad you did it. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, there was there there, there can be complications with ESOPs when when events come down. When you know, Enterprise Ireland were big were investors as well. So, um, you know, the the I suppose the paperwork and the legal side of it can get a bit tricky if you don't set it up right. So. Always good to get advice at the start of the ESOP when you're creating the paperwork uh, around the scheme itself. Um, that's important to get that right because you don't want it getting in the way of any other investment further down the line, you know. Okay, good. Good point. Okay, so then you 
had some investors, uh, Australian investors, and allowed you to sell Kicker. What was it like to leave something that you had spent so long developing? Well, we had, we, I mean, the Australian connection is a funny one. We were doing business with, um, with a, a, some Australian people who were helping us kind of build markets in Hong Kong and Singapore. And um, they, they were tapping in possible investors in Australia for us. Um, as well, and uh, their their view, and one that we followed, you know, something that we followed up with was that, given the nature of our customers, uh, which were all banks. I mean, the, the customer base includes the likes of you know, Bank of Ireland is our big Irish customer, but or was a big Irish customer, uh, but the likes of Bloomberg, Citigroup, you know, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they're all they're all kind of, you know, big big international banks. That there was merit in listing uh, somewhere uh, because the fact that you go through all the due diligence in listing that that gives a certain amount of gives a certain amount of weight to the entity, the company. The fact that you've been kind of been put through the ringer in the listing process that that helps a bank uh, that gives a certain amount of comfort to a bank who might want to take your API and embed it in their whole onboarding system. Um, yeah. Because, because the listing being, you know, you've access to more money, but you've, you, you, you're also a more robust comp- company simply because you've been through all the DD and all the legals are, you know, in place. Uh, you know, all contracts are kind of easier, all procurement is easier to get through. Um, because prior to then we were, you know, we were, uh, you know, a 15 man operation or person operation in Waterford, you know, dealing with Bloomberg in New York or, or Citigroup in, in London or so, so. So it just gives the company a bit more oomph, if you know what I mean, uh, that helps. But can I ask, did you did you realize that before you started the process? Was that a strategic decision? Oh, yeah, it was. I mean, we, we I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do it in Australia. But we knew we had a we had a we did we had a lot of interest already at that stage in with us Australian investors. Australia at the time and to a certain extent even now it's is a very wealthy country. There's a lot of money there. There's a lot of Australia has boomed in the last twenty years, particularly on the back of commodities and raw materials and they do massive amount of business with China and it it's just does a does a lot of money there. And we had we had guys that were advising us that who'd, who'd listed businesses before, who were brokers, who I suppose sold the idea to us. And that was one of the principal ones was, are we, I mean, we would have questioned and said, why don't we do this in Ireland or do it in London, someplace geographically more close to us and to our base. Um, but they kind of persuaded us to do it out there uh, simply because of the connections and and. The, the way they would be able to manage it, and it was a deal worth doing. But the idea of, of being listed was was um, f- from the optics point of view was a big reason we did it. Uh, it was probably one of the biggest reasons. Obviously, we wanted to raise money as well. But um, so, but but those optics were very very good. And you know, we've when you list, you have to do a quarterly report, and there's a lot of overhead required with that. Um, but it, it's still. Uh, it has it has been a, a journey worth, worth worth doing, you know. 
just to ask another question, how did you discover that that was the thing that would help the optics? Like, did you, is it just because the environment you were in, you were around those kinds of people all the time? Was it something you always knew, was always in the plan or it was just became so obvious because of as you got deeper into your own market and your own customers, you knew that this could be a milestone, a linchpin that would leverage you into the next stage. My recollection is, is that our Australian advisors would have pitched that into us, but it said, okay, it, it, as opposed to us, us saying, we want to go about getting, uh, getting listed. Our conversation with those, uh, the Australian guys originally was let's get investors, you know, and, um, that, that that was that, that was it and the 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 nature of the product i mean it's a fintech it's it's a, it's a product that's consumed by banks you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of banks on our that have our funds run by bank funds that are investors and in kicker now you know so a, a, a lot of the big mm-hmm. international banks would own a portion of kicker so there's a product that banks understand uh yeah. um obviously is a product or a company that banks might want to invest in more easily because the banks understand how the uh, you know the importance of of kicker in their AML kind of obligations and that the fact that that's going to grow so that was I suppose that that was part of the the sell you know um so it's even um doubling up on on your stakeholders like your customers become your investors yeah exactly yeah 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 and some of them are some of them are because true, it makes sense for them. True, true funds, you know. So there'd be funds. I mean, we we have a registry of shareholders, and some of the funds have, have nebulous, vague names, but some of them are. Some of them are, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan, for example. You know, uh, a fund that's run by J.P. Morgan that's called J.P. Morgan uh, Fund. So yeah, yeah. So it definitely resonated more with banks in terms of pitching into them as, on the investment side. Um, because it was a product that they kind of knew and understood, uh, and, and you, you know, you you asking your question about about it handing it over and how did I feel about that? I mean, when 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 I left, it was there was, there was no problem handing it over. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't. I was gone well past thinking that it was my baby and that it was it was mine. You know, um, when does that happen? Well, when people come in that are that are running it, you know. And running it in a different yeah. way, and you know, you bring in experts uh, to to move it to the next level and to position it for a listing, and uh, then you you have to take a back seat and and, and let them drive it, you know. So it, it's not a yeah. It wasn't a hard. It wasn't hard for me. That a that yeah. transition. I just then had a job, which was my role changed from managing director or CEO to. Uh, director of data. So I just started to concentrate on the supply side into the business. But that was just that was mm-hmm. a job then, you know, and uh, I was still a director, but my role had changed. And that was I was perfectly happy doing that, you know, letting the letting the experts, uh, the new guys in to kind of r- run it in a different way and drive in a different direction. And the, the main focus of what they did yeah. was actually relocate a, a lot of the presence to London. You know, we have a team in Waterford with the bulk of the team is in Waterford, but we're, our head office is in Australia, but our sales team and our the kicker managing director is based in, in London, where, where, which is a big financial hub and probably appropriate that they're there, you know. 
I'm just going to take a very short break here to tell you about an opportunity where you can apply the insights from many of these conversations to your business. You've reached a point in your business where you've realized that in order to progress, you've got to be top of mind with more of your ideal customers, the ones you haven't met yet. You need to expand beyond who you already know and be seen for what you do best. And if you're ready to own your space in the marketplace, then this is my invitation to you to join my live 12-week program called Guided by Get Strategic, the complete A to Z guide to successfully position your business and own that coveted space in your customer's mind. She just knows what step you should take next. One of these rare finds, these really genuine people, Finola will help you to find your authentic voice. Finola has some wonderful methodologies. Did I say Finola really cares? She genuinely does. You manage to combine a proximity and helping hand with an online course or online program. You have an incredible generosity of spirit. Finola helps you to extract ideas and dreams of how to make your business even bigger. It is so much more than marketing. Click on the link in the show notes and find out more about Guided by Get Strategic, the complete A to Z guide to successfully position your business and own that coveted space in your customer's mind. Because I, I talk to a lot of people and, you know, this idea of the serial entrepreneur someone who builds something and then moves on. Is it just that? And I and I'm wondering about language around does the business outgrow you or it's and you're not it's not uh, a stage in the journey of the business that you want to be on um, or what do you think happens? You know, because you've now started another business and it's in a similar space, but it's kind of interesting this this idea and I don't know if I'm phrasing it in an offensive way to you, but I wonder that question of does the business outgrow you or do you outgrow the business? I think, I think, I think, well, not the latter. I think most of the time founders are, are, if the business goes well, founders are pushed out because they're the wrong people to, to bring it to the next level. Um, because, because they're founders, they're entrepreneurs who do the, do the, the grind or the, the worry, uh, you know, of, of what a startup is, you know, when you've no money and you're trying to pay people. Um, that, that's a different person than somebody coming in. Like the managing director came in to replace me was ex, um, he, he was ex managing director of, of a bank, you know, um, it, you know, he was, and he, he still is there. He's a serious guy. And he, he's, his experience was, and running businesses was just like aeons away from, from mine, you know, so uh, there, there are there are some entrepreneurs that say the journey, say the course, but I would say the majority, when things go well, the majority of entrepreneurs are kind of sidelined in a way, you know, because their their personalities are slightly different, you know, uh, they're good at different things, you know. But I, I see it even in other, I've, I've seen even when people getting jobs with a company that's at a certain stage in product development or even CTO jobs that that they're only good for that period in the company. And if the company goes stellar, they're the wrong people all of a sudden. And that that's okay. It's completely, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you gotta, mm. you gotta do what you're good at, you know? And, um, I, I, I still talk with the kicker guys every couple of months, get an update. Um, 
and we're, you know, I help as much as I can. You know, if I have stuff that comes into me that really is a kicker lead, I will send it to them. You know, um, it's there's no wow. there's no bridges burnt at all there. Um, you know, I don't, the better they do, the better I do. You know, because you're still involved as a shareholder. Because I'm a shareholder, yeah, yeah, love it. Cool. So, okay, you left in 2020. And you were, you were, it was good. It was the next obvious step for you. And now you started again. And I'm kind of interested in, you started again. It's a similar space. It's not the same space, but it's a similar space because playing to strengths. What is it that you took from Kicker to this next journey? So, so January 2020, just before COVID hit, I was finished with Kicker and I wanted to do a product that was similar in the same space. It was a, it's an AML anti-money laundering product, but it's for SMEs. Kicker was all about APIs going into the likes of Bloomberg and JP Morgan, these big city group, big banks. I wanted to create a product that was more suitable for the small solicitor down up in Tremor or up in Wexford or whatever. Um, mm. Who have, who now have AML obligations that they, that that are that that are quite stringent and uh, quite and enforced over the last couple of years, and to me, Kicker just doesn't service that market. So I wanted to create something that would service the SMEs, solicitors, accountants, estate agents, all the small to mediums who 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 might want to just use our platform to to help with their anti money laundering. So. It was. It, it is a different product uh, aimed at a completely different market, but it is in the same area. So, or my expertise or my experience with AML products is is the, is, is important there. Um, in terms of the, the our approach, um, I set it up with two others who are more technical than me. One our CTO and one who's also technical, and we um, we invested money ourselves. And we went about getting HBSU funding from Enterprise Ireland. And that was part of our strategy from day one was let's get in, get on the HBSU straight away. Don't, we didn't want to go the, the, you know, the voucher or the feasibility study grant. We wanted to go straight to HBSU, which we did luckily enough uh, with Enterprise Ireland. So we're on that program. So, so they matched our funding. So that gave us, you know, a good runway of, you know, without, uh, a, 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 a runway of time to build and change and tweak the product. And that's interesting because you were HPSU with Enterprise Ireland with Kicker, as I remember. So you had all those connections, which meant, I'm presuming, it meant that it was easier to be, because they knew your space already. Yeah, 100%. And they could, under, yeah. 100%. And, and, and it was, and I kind of knew that as well. And my my two other investors, I would have been quite bullish with them and saying, I will get us through this HBSU process. Whatever we put in, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get matched funding from and it was Ireland because uh, because I knew I knew how to write that business plan to suit uh, EI yeah. and I knew the business plan was gonna suit EI as well because it's got you know it's technology it's export uh, there's uh, there, there there are elements of it that were just stack up really well and the team was very strong and EI had been invested in Kicker and EI had done well on Kicker so. And do, do my other two two directors and founders, they're really really strong as well. And EI would have would know would have known one of them as well in previous stuff. So that was my kind of my 
my promise to my those guys was I'm going to double this straight away, and yeah. uh, which which was I was, I was never guaranteed that was going to happen, but but I I, I felt I had a good chance, and we did and I did that. The other thing in terms of the other tactically, what I wanted to, in terms of learnings from kicker was um, was about the market and marketing and market fit. So our first two employees were marketing people, which is really, a, you know, you're, you're going to be delighted to hear this, uh, uh, of course. Yes, obviously. <laughs> giving your background. Um, was our first two hires were marketing, a head of marketing and a, a marketing assistant, uh, both based in Waterford, both ba based with me in, in Arc Labs. And we took him in even before we had a product because we wanted to get as much of the marketing right as possible. The thing that I see with entrepreneurs or with startups in particular is there's never a budget for marketing. You know, it's always about yeah. get a product out there and there's always something else to spend it on, you know, and marketing will come, mm. you know. We wanted to really try to understand the market as well as possible, try to understand who was the buyer, who do we want to target, how are we going to do that? We're going to do it with LinkedIn, we're going to do it with Twitter, with social media in particular. Certainly on, on with you know with Google, um, but how do we do it really efficiently, and how do we hit the ground running when we do have a product? And essentially, that was the first part of their job was to let's do some market research, see what's out there, what's what are competitors doing, do analysis on them, do the buyer persona, how do we get mm -hmm. to them, who are they? Uh, went into massive amount of detail as to who we thought it was. Uh, what is the product that's going to fit best with them? How do we price it? All based on that research, uh, which is, it's kind of pre-marketing, I guess. It's market research, um, but... I, I, well, that is marketing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and how, do we, how do we message and get to these people as efficiently as possible with a minimum of cost, you know? Um, hmm. We did do, and I go, I go back to early days of, of uh, GBR, we... We did do an SEO um, move, or I don't know what you'd call it. We ran an SEO uh, kind of campaign for years, um, which was a bit of a machine, and it was very Rob. I have to give Rob credit for this. We we created an index of uh, that essentially that we controlled that. Google and, and the other bots would crawl and build their index as Google does and, and, and Bing. Um, and what, what, this was a huge index. And what it did was it told Google that we had information about Mary Murphy's uh, furniture business in mm. Athens. Jo jo Johnny Murphy's uh, uh, whatever window business in Sweden. So we built an index of, mm. of millions and millions of companies and put that on a web page, essentially, that we, mm. that, that we knew. It, sound, it sounds very clunky. It kind of was clunky, but, but that's what Google does. Google sends out bots and it, it crawls websites. And that's the Google magic is it'll match your search to a bit of information that Google has indexed. And mm. out of that, so that was a big driver for, uh, for um, GBR Direct and Kicker. And we... And that was free. Once that was set up, that ran all the time. Um, and that wasn't, mm. that wasn't paid search now. Uh, we didn't pay Google for anything for this. But we did, our results for organic searches were, was outstanding for 
um, mm. particularly for vague or, or not, not even vague, co- particularly for companies that didn't have a website. So they're really hard to find stuff. Uh, mm. You would Google that and your organic search, we come up first to second uh, amazingly effectively uh, for years. And that was that was really, really clever um, and really helpful for us to grab our the customers that we wanted, which were, as I said, banks, bigger law firms and other financial institutions. It makes sense. I mean, making sure that you're found for what your target customer is looking for. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Completely. Completely. Yeah. But it meant it, it was a, it was one of the it was one of the biggest sites in the world. It was. Yeah. It, it had information on I think it was up to 30 million companies it had on it. And it was on a site that's that was uh, slightly separate from our core site. But when you clicked on the company, it jumped into our core site with, yeah. with that company in there and the company information that you could get for that company there. So in the con- I, I mentioned that in the context of we, di- we, we didn't want to do something similar with, uh, with uh, Uber service. It's a new company, but we did want to really be clever around our, our, our marketing and how we leverage free stuff that's out there. You know? Do you think you came late to your marketing for GBR Direct slash Kicker in terms of messaging and customer product fit, all that stuff? Oh, 100%, yeah. Like, why did you choose to hire, the first two hires were going to be marketing people? Because we we, we, we took years to get it right with, with, uh, yeah. with GBR. It took yeah. years, you know. I mean, the the thing about establishing who the buyer is, you know, we're talking about level of detail that is, are they male or are they female? Are they between 20 and 30 or are they between 30 and 50? Um yeah. What is their role? What is their title? What is their second title? Because you can have a you can have another title that kind of means within cer- certain companies means the same thing as being a antimonial learning officer is a very obvious one. But you can get you know it can be chief risk officer, it can be legal counsel. There's a lot of kind of uh, detail in that, and we'd have mm. to work that out. Okay, if that company mm. doesn't have an MLRO, maybe it's maybe it's legal counsel, or maybe it's it's a, a director, you know, so, so, so establishing as much as we could, what resonates with them uh, as much as possible. And how do we then become a voice on various forums, be a resource for them? How do we, you know, with newsletters, with creating blogs, which we systematically mm-hmm. do now that we would never have done when I was with uh, GBR. So this idea of having you know, we have a suite of uh, one of my jobs is I create a, a blog a month. So do two or three other people in the company. So we've got a we've got a we've got a stash of blogs or or uh, and that that can go out when we want to put them yeah. out, and we'd have newsletters that go out systematically as well. Um, we'd have tweets. Yeah. So it is know. content marketing. Yeah. Oh, completely. And we've you know we've tweets that go out every morning. We've LinkedIn stuff that goes out every morning uh, at certain times of the day b- based on. What, what time works best? Uh, when do people react to stuff? Uh, it was very interesting during COVID how that kind of changed. There was stuff that we were putting out on Saturday morning that seemed to resonate, you know, um, or, or get get more, um, get picked up more, you know. And doing that, I mean, it's interesting to say that you advocate that now, whereas I think that at the very start, when you started in business, you probably never would have done that. Not a, but it's moved on so much to Fanola, you know, the, the idea of mm. 
what can be done in terms of tracking activity, tracking engagements. Yeah. We use HubSpot now with the, the now in a, in a big way with the new site, with the new service. We've called to actions that, you know, all funnel back to the, the right place. You know, the kind of key action is to sign up for a free trial. Um, we, mm. we, we know when people interact with us, uh, how, you know, their activity on our site, basically, you know. When when people are sent uh, or click on a link on a LinkedIn post, for example, you know we track everything. Um, we track everything on our site using HubSpot, and we're only we're only you know we're only getting into that more and more now, um, and really kind of honing that to be to be a machine. You know, the new product is um, is a SaaS product. We it's 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 at a price point that we don't want to be handholding people, and part of that is to kind of understand. When people come in, we try to get them to a point where uh, we can they can just buy, um, and they they have enough information to be comfortable to kind of sign up for a free trial. Obviously, signing up for a free trial is free, but we 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 do we 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 do have videos in place to kind of help kind of ease that flow that uh, for a person that we that we know is interested, um, and that's in the space that requires our product, and we just we just want them to kind of. Get through the whole process without having to ring up and get support, you know, uh, because that's that yeah. that becomes costly then, you know. Yeah, so it's all mapping the customer journey at every single stage. It's all that good marketing stuff. It's lovely to hear a convert. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is how you do it with tech, isn't it? I mean, this 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 mm. this idea. I mean, it's it's the models. The models. These models have emerged over the last what ten years. We were slow to slow to do it ten years ago, you know. Uh, but we're not now, you know, mm. because we, we we can't afford to be we can't afford it to be uh, heavy in terms of overhead because our price point is quite low. It's less than a thousand euros a year. Um, yeah. So we need a lot of those, but we Amazing. can't be hand holding them all, you know. Yeah. Fantastic. What is the message? Well, actually, one other thing I'd love you to just talk about for a second, if you don't mind. When you started this new business and you had your two partners, you knew that. Your lovely wife has uh, a secondment or a, a period of time that she has to work in New York and you made the decision to move to New York, even though your day-to-day uh, -day business dealings are on Irish time. It's unusual because normally it's Irish people in Ireland working on US time, but you're actually doing the flip. So it's kind of interesting. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, sure. So my... My lovely wife, Kathy, is a colorectal surgeon <clears throat> and she's doing a fellowship this year in a hospital called Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is mm -hmm. just across the road from me here. I can, I can see it. Um, it's a, it's a cancer, cancer specialist uh, hospital uh, where she's working and she's specializing in uh, robotic surgery for the year. So she moves over here about two months ago. I moved, wow. I moved here three weeks ago to join her. Um, so we st so we are predominantly servicing a, an Irish and UK market. We do have a couple of US customers, uh, but they would be bigger customers, which with where we're selling an API or partnership kind of conversation with them. But predominantly, my work is on Irish customers right now, and so I'm trying mm -hmm. to do work Irish time as much as possible. Well, so we 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 start work. We I start. Uh, we have a call every morning at 7 a.m. 
my time, which is 12 noon over there. And that allows uh, me to, I suppose, work hand in glove with the team in Ireland. The team in Ireland is, is disparate anyway. We've got uh, two in Dublin, we've got three in uh, three in Waterford, and one of those three in Waterford is, travels a lot. He's, a, I suppose, a digital nomad. He's a tech guy. He's at the moment in Crete. Um, and we've got yeah. in Barcelona. So me being here really isn't that much different. We we have an office in Arc Labs, but uh, I, I would have always been in the office more than anybody else. So uh, it doesn't really change the dynamic in terms of face-to-face stuff, but it does change the time. Mm. The time difference is tricky to manage. But it, what it does, what we try to do is we try to have stuff done for the team the next day. So so I'll, I'll start this morning at seven o'clock here and... The guys are already ahead of me. Obviously, they've been at work for a number of hours and stuff is done. And then when they finish, I try to catch up or I get stuff done that that's ready for them the next morning. So it can be efficient that way. And I've, I, 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 my calendar is an open calendar in that I, um, any calls, customer calls that need to be done, I tend to do them. And my calendar is only open from 12 noon onwards every day, if you know what I mean, so that I can't get a call mm. before I can't a call cannot be scheduled with me before seven a.m. and yeah, we're still it's still being bedded in. It's not it's not perfect yet, but um, I'm still working from the the apartment. I have uh, I have access to an Enterprise Ireland office uh, in Park Avenue, which I haven't got in there yet because the lease there there's a delay with the lease. But I'm going to move. I'm going to be in there three days a week or two days a week. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, service, isn't it, that we can tap into Enterprise Ireland all over the world to grow businesses? Uh, well, Enterprise Ireland are brilliant, Flora. Uh, you know, they've there's kind of obvious benefits of money and help and grants and investment, uh, which is all fantastic. But but there are other soft benefits that are fantastic as well in terms of you know uh, mentorship, in terms of uh, introductions, in terms of trade shows. There are certain markets where EI just do fantastic stuff and are particularly powerful in terms of getting access to, uh, I suppose, customers who view a government involvement in your company or, or support as being really impressive, you know, particularly in places mm-hmm. like uh, Far East. Uh, Enterprise Ireland would open doors in a way that that's just, that all, you know, our, our contemporaries in other countries are kind of are envious, you know. When a government agency okay. brings over a minister or a, a host an ambassador event, and you're invited, you know, to a government event, and that government are supporting my company, that's that's a really big big uh, plus with them. And you know, there are fantastic de- uh, development advisors that are, you know, I've, we we have a fantastic guy at the moment, and he's fantastic just to bounce ideas off and just get a just 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 to hear what he thinks about, you know, issues that can, can arise, you know. So I've, I've nothing but praise. Because he will have dealt with them before with others. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, they're one of the biggest investors in in in, Cyrus in, the, in, in, in the world, you know. So mm-hmm. they've got fantastic people and uh, just, you know, they've been instrumental for GBR and Kicker and, and, and in the service as well, you know, this new product. And getting access to an office is going to be, is great, yeah. Yeah, gets me out of here uh, two days a week. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything you'd like to leave people with as a kind of a learning that you'd like other entrepreneurs to walk away with? 
apart from everything you've already said. <laughs> well, perseverance, it's brave, you know, it's hard. It's, it, 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 yeah. it's, it's hard. Um, I, I just did it because I had nothing else to do. You know, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest. Um, um, and I was in a, I, I was in a, you know, career wise, I was, I was, I just finished playing rugby. So I wasn't, I, I didn't have anything planned, you know? Um, so I kind of, that, that was the needs must, you know? Um, but it's, mm. but at times it can be hard and, you know, it's a, it's brave and it's, but it's a, it's a, it can be a brilliant journey, you know? Um, lots mm. of ups, lots of ups, you know? Um, and just in terms of the stress of it, um, I just don't get too stressed about it when, even when it was gone all pear shaped, you know, at times I still am able to sleep. Maybe that's a kind of the like, capacity that I have. That's a bit odd, you know, that I can still fall asleep. But are you, you like that anyway? Cause you're always so chilled. Yeah. Well, you know, I do stress about things, but, but, um, you know, it, I absolutely do. Um, but it never kept me up at night really, you know, um, mm-hmm. Which, if it is, would be, I think, a very different thing, you know. Um, yeah. Because you know, if you're doing, if if you're at the grind for, for, uh, for months and months and months on end, you know, it's hard, you know. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's better to just pull the plug. So, I, 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 you know, that's not a pearl of wisdom. That is just, it, it can be, it is hard, but it, and, but the ups are fantastic, you know. You know, and you. The, and the, do you feel it was worth it? The people are, you know, the people. Are, people I met are just fantastic. The things I've done is just, um, you know, just sometimes I pinch myself in sitting in, in yeah. an office in Park Avenue, you know, looking out the window on the 25th floor, you know, so um, it's fantastic. And the, the thing about when you're employing people, to me, um, to me having, getting, getting smart people around you, no matter, you know, what age they are, what experience they have, that's really exciting, you know. It's fantastic being in a room mm. with people that are all smarter than you. You know, that's I've heard that mm. many times, you know, and that's you can do that. You know, if you sell an idea, at the, you get people excited, you can get people on board and you can have really, really smart people working with you. And, you know, the synergies obviously come into play then and you can, you can reach for the moon then, you know, uh, if you have smart people mm. with you. you know? And if you have them engaged, if you have them committed and, you know, you mentioned the ESOP scheme. That was a big part of that, you know. How do you, how do I keep these really clever guys with us for mm. the next five years? And that was that was that was, that's exciting, you know, because clever people, you know, just working together, you know, it's it's very exciting. Cool. I think that's a good place to leave us. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Ben, look him up on LinkedIn under Ben Cronin. Or check out his latest venture at uboservice.com. And if you'd be so kind to share this episode with someone you know who would find it valuable, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out to me about the podcast or anything else, connect with me on LinkedIn. Just look for Finola Howard, F-I-N-O-L-A Howard. And have a great day. I'll see you next week with another great guest.